Section 59 of the Catholic's Ready Answer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tatiana Chachilla, Columbus, Ohio. The Catholic's Ready Answer by Rev. M. P. Hill. Section 59. Mind and Matter. Erroneous View. Mind is only a phosphorescence of the brain. Hence mind, to call it by that name, is but a state or condition of matter. Spiritual mind or soul vanishes under the light of analysis and experiment. The truth. Such is the pronouncement of the materialist, but it is not the teaching of sound philosophy, which tells me that man possesses, besides a body and bodily senses, a spiritual mind, and that it is mind that renders him superior to the rest of visible creation and enables him to subdue all things to his power. The root of this power lies in the mind's capability of attaining to knowledge, as distinguished from mere sense impressions, and the beginning of knowledge is abstract thought. By abstract thinking, we mean the withdrawing of the mind from the particular object we happen to be contemplating and fixing it on the kind or species to which the thing belongs. Instead of thinking, for instance, of this or that particular horse, I think of the kind or class or species known as the horse, the horse in general. It is by the mind's power of abstracting that it is enabled to free itself from the conditions of matter and soar above the domain of sense. Science is man's greatest achievement and science is abstract thought. The proof that mind is an immaterial or spiritual faculty lies in its immaterial or spiritual functions. The acts of the mind are spiritual. The mind itself must be spiritual. Take any abstract idea, analyze it, and at once the superior power of mind will be manifest. One class of abstract conceptions is that of relations. Let us take one of these relations, ownership. The idea of ownership cannot be conceived by any faculty that is not spiritual. An illustration. I see before me a piece of money, a gold coin belonging to a friend of mine. There is nothing in the coin itself declaring who is its owner, and yet, if I should appropriate the coin and spend it for my uses, I should be guilty of an act of injustice. If my friend should take it and make good use of it, he should be acting within his rights. And yet no one can discover by sight or by touch that the coin bears a relation to my friend which it does not bear to me, the relation of a thing owned to its owner. Ownership is not a material thing, it is immaterial, and therefore cannot be apprehended by any but an immaterial faculty, or, in other words, by mind. The same may be said of all other abstract conceptions, such as truth, justice, virtue, vice, and the like, and of abstract conceptions of energy, gravitation, quantity, dimension, and other material qualities. These ideas are realities, for they are the very subject matter of science which deals only with realities. Regard them as fictions, and science becomes a bundle of unrealities. There is need of little reflection to see that science has to do with abstract and general truths. A physicist writing on the conservation of energy is not concerned with any particular instance of energy, unless incidentally, but with energy in general. The moralist in treating of justice is thinking of justice in the abstract, and not of justice as exercised in this or that particular case. Thus the whole of science is made up of abstractions. Its definitions, its axioms, its laws, its principles are all abstractions. Now all these abstractions are realities, otherwise they could not be the subject matter of science, but they are not realities of the material order. They rise above matter and material conditions into the domain of the immaterial and spiritual. Therefore, the mind that conceives them must be of the same order. But is it not the brain that thinks? Do we not call a good thinker a man of brains? And is not the brain matter that can be weighed and measured? No, it is not the brain that thinks. Nevertheless, the brain has something to do with thinking. It acts the part of a servant to the mind. It supplies what may be called the raw material of thought, the images or phantasms from which the mind abstracts its general or universal notions. The action of the brain is needed, but in some such way as the stoker is needed in the running of an engine. The brain supplies the material, and the mind transforms it. And yet, 
There are those who think otherwise and assert that the brain has all to do with thinking and that thinking is a purely material operation. This capital error is due to the fact that those who have fallen into it confine their attention to the mere physiological accompaniments of mental operations. They see the working of the intricate machinery which nature has supplied in the nervous system and the brain and jump to the conclusion that this is the sum and substance of thought and emotion. Every mental act is accompanied by a movement in the nervous system and the brain. Man being composed of body and soul, there is a blending of the functions of the body with those of the soul in all his acts. Neither soul nor body acts alone. Each has its own distinct processes, but the two factors work harmoniously together. Let me suppose I am sitting at a window overlooking a fine landscape. I note, one after another, the beautiful features of the scene and am filled with admiration. Finally, I resolve to go out into the open air to explore some part of the landscape to which I have been specially attracted. Afterward, on reviewing all that has occurred, I notice a series of mental or intellectual operations, reflection, admiration, volition, the willing of something. But accompanying these, though silent and observed, are a number of operations belonging to the material part of my nature. First, the eye receives its impressions of the scene and transmits them by means of a set of nerves to the brain. Finally, the brain, by means of another set of nerves, sends a return message to the external muscles, and the body is soon in motion. Now, there is not one of these last-mentioned operations which bears any resemblance to thought or to any intellectual phenomenon whatever. The vibration of a nerve is neither thought nor feeling. No readjustment of the molecules of the brain would ever be described by any sensible man as an act of willing, and yet these physical operations are needed as a basis for mental operations. The mind is thus dependent extrinsically on the senses and the nervous system, whilst its own intrinsic operation is of a totally different nature and belongs to the order of things spiritual. It is obvious that if A always accompanies B, the fact may be significant, but we cannot conclude that the two are identical. Yet this is the mistake into which the materialist falls. Mind is matter because the two invariably go hand in hand. The head in front of his offense against sound science is that he confines his attention to the material side of intellectual operations and then concludes that there is no other side. He thus reduces all the power of mind and will that has shaped the destinies of the human race to the action of a bundle of quivering nerves. The study of these two sets of phenomena in their mutual relations is the object of a science which may be said to have sprung into existence in our own day, physiological psychology, otherwise known as experimental psychology or as psychophysics. Its first task is to observe and coordinate all the outward manifestations of mind. It measures, or attempts to measure, the duration and intensity of mental acts and states, thinking, desiring, resolving, and the like. Delicately constructed instruments record, for instance, the time elapsing between the first stimulus given the outward sense and the voluntary motion of the muscles resulting from it. The psychophysicist has his apparatus in his laboratory and has devised an intricate system of experiments on living subjects. The ultimate aim of experimental psychology is to obtain a knowledge of mind itself. This final purpose it cannot safely discard. For psychology, to be worthy of its name, should tell us something of the nature of soul, or at least of such manifestations of soul and mind. What has physiological psychology accomplished? We mean, of course, principally as regards the nature of mental acts and of mind itself. Directly and by the use of its peculiar methods, it has accomplished absolutely nothing. It has, it is true, brought to light a number of curious facts connected with mental phenomena, but these are not part and parcel of the mental acts themselves, of thought, emotion, volition. The most distinguished representatives of the science have had to acknowledge that there is something that lies beyond the reach of their experiments and which is totally different from what is observed. The most distinguished of them all, Professor Wundt, tells us that if the brain were ransacked to the utmost and all its processes exposed to view, it would still be brain and nothing more. As to the psychical import of these processes, we should learn nothing. If this view be correct, then the psychophysicist is doing business under false pretenses. His business is physiology, not psychology.
However, the mere work of observing and endeavoring to synthesize the sensible phenomena connected with thought is a perfectly legitimate pursuit. It may be hoped, too, that for all the well-intentioned students, one good result may be produced which has already been produced in the case of more than one psychophysicist, that experiment and reflection will have added fresh emphasis to the fact that what is observable by means of physical apparatus and visible experiment is utterly different from and inferior to what are properly called mental or psychic phenomena, and that the difference is precisely that which subsists between the material and the spiritual. Perhaps, too, as regards the mind itself is distinguished from its acts, some will be brought to the conviction of a very distinguished psychophysicist, Professor Ladd, that mind is not only a reality distinct from its material habit, but a spiritual reality as well. The only way, says Professor Ladd, of maintaining the materiality of mind would then appear to be that of denying its real existence at all, and of attributing its phenomena to the material molecules of the brain as their real and material substratum or basis. But the untenable nature of this view has already been sufficiently indicated. The negative conclusion that mind is non-material is quite inevitable for everyone who admits that mind is a real being with any nature whatever. It is not difficult, also, to show that we must make the corresponding positive statement and affirm the spirituality of mind. Elements of Physiological Psychology, page 682. The materialist has frequently exploited the work of the psychophysicist for his own purposes, but evidently in doing so he parts company with the distinguished masters of this science. See Materialism and Soul. End of section 59. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio.